So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today I am sitting down with Rob Viglioni, co-founder and CEO of Zen Labs, and we are talking about their privacy coin, privacy platform, and privacy overall, the need for privacy. We're talking about what the U.S. government is talking about encryption, uh, putting in backdoors, why privacy is important, what that fight of encryption looks like. And then we get into some other topics. Rob is a PhD in economics, so we get into economics, Austrian economics, and so much more. It's a great conversation with Rob, and let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, I am joined by Rob Viglioni. He is the CEO, co-founder of Zen Labs, Horizon uh, Cryptocurrency, and he's got a, a very good background before that as well. It's very interesting. We're going to dive into, um, but let's get into it. Welcome, Rob. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, so Again, we've had a couple of good conversations in the past. It's always a pleasure to talk yeah. to you. So thanks, thanks for coming back on. Um, so I've got to know you pretty good uh, over the past. But for people that are listening for the first time, why don't you give us uh, your background, which I think is very interesting, and kind of your path into cryptocurrencies and, and what you're working on right now. No, totally. So I, my background, actually, I started my career uh, as a physicist and mathematician working uh, uh, with the military. So I was an Air Force officer, worked in Air Force Space Command, working on satellites and intelligence systems and uh, rockets that launch them up. And from there, I went into the more of the operational side of the intelligence world and uh, actually parked myself in Afghanistan for a couple of years, uh, doing initially a counter IED mission. Uh, it was really quant, like quant intel work. And then started working with a bunch of different um, parts of the military and a bunch of different uh, missions over there. Uh, and then from there, I, I got lucky enough to uh, have the opportunity to go back to academia. So I, I left that world went back to uh, for my PhD in uh, financial economics, and I had a very good department that allowed me to study Bitcoin. Um, I, I was studying asset pricing specifically, and then they allowed me to actually look at Bitcoin asset pricing. So that was fun. Um, they hired me back as an adjunct faculty member to teach uh, Bitcoin and blockchain applications and finance. And then I launched uh, Zencash back in 2017 with my co-founder, Roth Versluis. And we ran that as an open, um, you know, public blockchain system for a couple of years. And just recently, this January, we launched an offshoot, basically a commercial offshoot called Horizon Labs, which is really taking the base like protocol technology that we've created there. And we can talk about that, but um, bringing that to the commercial domain and really just trying to get that next level exposure for the tech and then the real economic use cases. So um, Horizon Zen, which used to be Zencash, now Horizon is a, is a privacy coin right? Uh, forked off of Zcash and uh, Z Classic, et cetera. Uh, but you have a, you're a privacy coin. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you went on to become more of a privacy protocol where you could build privacy applications mm -hmm. such as private messenger, private storage, et cetera. So right. is that what you're talking about? Taking that layer and putting that out as Horizon Labs? That's exactly right. So actually, it, to be specific, we're, we're a few months away now from releasing an alpha of our sidechain protocol. So the way that we're looking at this and really the, that pivot from a, a, a privacy coin to a, a platform is via sidechain. So the way we look at it is we want to create a hub and spoke sort of model where you have a very stable, secure main chain. And then you have all the application specific logic and business logic and 
anything that you want to do bespoke, um, you can do on a side chain and you can have your own side chains. You can have any number of side chains, really that, that part's not really bounded. Um, and then it doesn't, the, the stuff that happens on the sessions doesn't necessarily clog up the main chain. All that goes to the main chain is basically the security feature and the fact that consensus on the side chains has been met. So this is our, our solution for scalability basically. And really where, uh, I think we will be industry leaders once we release this because, uh, it's a truly unfederated sidechain system. And when we talk about philosophy and, you know, what we're doing later in, in this show, uh, we can talk about that, but I think it's really important to be truly decentralized. And the sidechain systems on the market to date have been um, centralized. So those where you have to rely on trusted nodes or trusted certifiers, uh, ours is a truly decentralized one where the main chain doesn't even have to know what happens in a sidechain. No one approves or you know authorizes the sidechain to exist. It's just this, you know, any app developer can take our toolkit, launch their own blockchain as a Horizon sidechain, do whatever they want on that chain, and still retain the security uh, properties of you know our public uh, architecture. Interesting. So a lot of times we'll see like with Lightning, for example, as a sidechain of Bitcoin, Lightning is more centralized. And Absolutely. So yeah. Less. It's less. It's you know it's less secure than the decentralized uh, main chain. Um, and so typically I think of sidechains as less less secure, right? Uh, and, but you're saying there's a way that you guys can keep a sidechain but still keep its security or decentralization there? Absolutely. Like massively secure. So we're actually using an interesting recursive snark technique for security and leveraging our thirty thousand uh, nodes. Uh, basically, our, our super and secure node system. We have close to a thir about thirty thousand nodes right now, like full nodes operating in the network. And they will be basically a competitive marketplace for them to be certifying nodes. So you'll have a massive node network where basically, um, you know, all, all of these nodes will have the opportunity to act as certifiers or forgers on, on the side chains and also actively hunting, incentivized to hunt for fraud uh, and uncover fraud. So it's actually an extremely secure system. It's this nice hybrid public-private uh, architecture. Yeah. I, I remember you guys had suffered an, an attack um, that you caught pretty quickly and you got really in front of, which I, I really right. thought the way you handled that was good. Um, and you made some updates to the system. So um, I believe, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, but after that, you had updated the system and even changed the way maybe the consensus works so that even though yep. um, your chain might be uh, let, have less value than the Bitcoin main chain, it uh, doesn't make it easier to attack. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what we did was we modified the Nakamoto consensus. So instead of just being, um, you know, I'll say naively, just the longest chain rule, you know, the, the most, the, the most proof of work, um, you know, dictating which, which, uh, branch of a chain gets to be the valid one. We added a second check, which basically provides a delayed block penalty to that. So the, the attack vector for this 51% attack thing was basically you would have a nefarious actor mining privately. And then all of a sudden dumping all of these blocks of the mine privately onto the network and spoofing the network into thinking that it has the most accumulated proof of work. And then they can execute double spends. And this happened to us. We had a few double spends that were executed or basically, um, you know, a hacker or whatever you want to call this type of criminal stole a few hundred thousand dollars from an exchange that lists Zen. Um, so it was a terrible event, uh, but not catastrophic. And what it did was it really kicked us into gear to try to solve this problem for the industry. And for us, of course, uh, so we added this second check. So it's really a two checks uh, type of consensus now. It makes us much more robust, if, you know, without it than, than we are without it. Um, now, not not to say like Bitcoin's massively secure because it has ridiculous amount of proof of work on there. We have a, a minuscule amount of proof of work, but our penalty function we can actually modulate that to be as uh, escalate as quickly as we want it to be. And right now, it's 
you know, seems to be more than sufficient to protect us. Yeah, that's good. Now, um, I know with new technologies, we can't really envision the future uh, because they give us new platforms to build new things off of we can't imagine. But um, as best as we can, what do you see being done on these side chains, at least now or in the near future? Yeah, I mean, so there, there's a ton. And actually, our, we, we have a go-to-market strategy. We have a great strategy marketing BD team, and they've already been carving out projects with select design partners. So basically, right out of the gate, once our alpha is released, you're going to hear an announcement for uh, some key companies and projects that we're working on um, to showcase the technology. So for instance, one of them is a large digital invoicing company in Latin America. Uh, looking at um, in integrating cryptocurrency payments, looking to do uh, things like factoring marketplaces. So if their clients have uh, receivables or payables, these notes, they could actually digitize them, uh, you know, standardize them, make them transparent, and put them into an auction marketplace environment. So that's something we're looking at. We're and also look and by, by doing that sidechain, they'd have their own token? Exactly. So they can have their own token, their own system. So basically, if, if their system becomes massively popular, it's theirs, they control it. And then importantly, uh, we provide our software developer toolkit provides a, a basically a reference blockchain model and a whole bunch of tools, but they can modify the consensus and add any type of transaction type they want from there to really make it very bespoke and configurable to their needs. Okay. Yeah. So, so that, that's one of them. Um, so also there's another project looking at a, a factory marketplace seems to be a pretty hot topic and another auction environment looking at a tokenization platform looking at working with uh, one of the main maintainers for a version of Hyperledger that has an EVM uh, and seeing if maybe we can put in uh, an EVM uh, variant of Hyperledger running as a Horizon sidechain. So it just shows you the generalizability of it as long as... Um, an EVM, an Ethereum yeah. virtual machine. So exactly, right. Put so an Ethereum virtual machine as a sidechain on the Horizon main chain? Exactly. And in that sense, it means that any smart contract that was written on Ethereum would be compatible to basically just kind of ported over to work with us. Now, would it interact with the, you know, the Ethereum chain, but you're basically replicating the same type of, um, you know, infrastructure that they could build on us as an alternative. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so, you know, when we talk about like base layers and then we add chains and layers and side chains and all these different things on there. Um, I mean, that's kind of how things scale. Um, what about like um, using like, a side chain or some sort of like horizon side chain to like add like a, a privacy layer on top of a, a, a Bitcoin, like a side chain of Bitcoin. Is there some sort of like interoperability like that? That's interesting. That, that's a really interesting question. We honestly have not thought about that. So that's, it's something to consider. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. What I like about the side chain model is you can experiment with any type of system as a side chain and rather than launch your own blockchain and figure out how you, know, you do this big, uh, your big launch and convince people to run your software, you could just do it a, a small experiment on a sidechain, modify the, you know, the privacy features, modify the applications you run on there, modify consensus. Uh, it, it's an excellent experimental environment. Yeah. You could almost like, uh, you, you know, I don't know, maybe wrap, wrap the, wrap the Bitcoin with a Zen privacy coin and then, uh, and then add like a privacy layer on top of the Bitcoin network or something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I've often just thought about like, you know, obviously Bitcoin's missing a huge piece of that, of privacy. Right. It's a, it's a, right. it's a big glaring hole that maybe they'll get to at some point, but then there's good solutions right. like, like, uh, like horizon. And I just wondered about that, but I'm not, I'm not the guy to figure that out. 
<laughs> by any means. Uh, but I, I definitely understand the, the need for privacy. You know, mm-hmm. from your background, you were in the military, and, and I think you were working on some sort of like encryption stuff there or some sort of reconnaissance intelligence or something. Yeah, I mean, definitely encrypted systems, but uh, really from the intelligence satellite perspective. So, okay, so but encryption, and so yeah. you understand, you understand kind of the need for that. Um, what do you think about um, the need for privacy and the, the maybe the war on privacy that we have today? I think maybe specifically about um, you know them calling for an end to encryption. Right. I mean, so trying to stay above the line with the thinking is I. I, I've seen, you know, uh, the downsides of, um, you know, or, or I could say there's a downside to people being able to hide and obfuscate, you know, bad behavior, right? We all know that no one's trying to argue against that. I think it would be a big shame though, if regulators, um, didn't quite take the time to understand what we're doing and all of the social and economic good and value that comes with actually allowing people uh, you know, privacy, which is kind of a shame or philosophically weird to say allow people to have privacy because I think we, we have a right to it to begin with, right? Um, so I, I guess my, my perspective is there are bad people out there and bad people can do bad things. We all know this and it would suck if they use their technology to do it. They use cell phones, they use dollars, right? They use all the tools that are currently exist. Uh, and yet we know that cell phones, you know, and encryption on cell phones is absolutely critical. And the ability for people to communicate with each other has unleashed probably trillions of dollars worth of economic value and social good. So I really hope regulators take their time to do their due diligence and don't overreact uh, and take, you know, these kind of like straw man examples of terrible scenarios and try to destroy the entire industry it would just be a disaster. I, I don't th- see that. I though. think when they get into those hyped up examples, like you said, yeah. you know, like uh, I think it was Obama, you said, you know, if we can save one life, yeah. really? Yeah. So we're going to destroy the entire um, right. constitution and, 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 right. and start a civil war to save one life? Right. And then how many lives get destroyed? Right. You have to weigh the good and the bad. And, and, yes. uh, and, and it's almost like, um, you know, I could whisper a secret to you. Yeah. And how are they going to regulate that? But because now I want to share a secret with you over communication. Now all of a sudden right. it has to be listened to. Um, right. Right. Exactly. You, you know, in, yeah, I was gonna say the argumentative technique is to come up with that, you know, that, that micro example that just, you know, is in your face. Look at this kid that was killed from this, you know, predator who used encryption somehow. It's a horrible example. And it just elicits, elicits emotions. And then on the other hand, you say, Hey, Constitution, Bill of Rights, you can't do that. And it's this kind of like abstract argument. And people just naturally flow towards that emotional argument. And it's easy to forget, you know, that, well, hey, if you violate human rights and you violate the Constitution and Bill of Rights, you can have a whole lot more destruction that happens. I think, I think we can see all the hot button issues uh, that, that are discussed politically have gone from um, logical arguments to emotional arguments. Exactly. So most of these things... Uh, <laughs> You know, I don't even want to say, but you know, whether it be gun, guns or vaccines or whatever, um, you can't have a logical conversation. Even climate change, you can't have a logical yeah. conversation. It's always an emotional one, and then you you can't right. you can't reason with with emotion. Um, right. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, I completely agree, and and that's really a shame. It's insulting. So. Yeah, it's insulting. Yeah. So I'm curious, though, um, what you think about this attack on privacy, not from a philosophical level, but from being a U.S.-based company. Uh, what does that look like, do you think? I mean, I'll just caveat <laughs> this with, hey, we're, we're a U.S.-based company, so we have to comply with U.S. law. 
Uh, we have no intention of not doing that, but at the same time, uh, I don't, I, I'm, I'm optimistic on it. I don't think that these straw man arguments and kind of doomsday scenarios that get pulled out, out for, you know, uh, PR opportunities, I don't think that they're going to you know, carry the day and we're going to see destruction of privacy. I don't think we'll ever see a backdoor on, you know, uh, iPhones or at least one is legislated. And of course, there's always agencies that can do that with, you know, illegally without us knowing, and then hopefully we catch them. Right. Um, but, you know, so I, I'm optimistic. I think that it's pretty, it's pretty well uh, established that code is sort of a kind of a, a freedom of speech element right. and you can't repress code. Uh, you can't try to violate the mathematics of encryption. Sorry, it just doesn't happen. Right. So I, I, I don't think that we're going to have this dystopian um, you know, outcome. I, I really hope not. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I mean, they're going to basically have to blow up the, the yeah. Constitution, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, that, that the argument will come back down to the right to uh, freedom of speech, and and uh, that's going to be a very tough one for people to to swallow. Although it's been interesting to see what's happened on the digital, uh, like the three D printed gun front, yeah, been yeah, trying to claim that freedom of speech as well. Yep. Yeah. Um, but what about? Um, I mean, that would be affecting, I guess, U.S. companies. But there's plenty of uh, blockchain, cryptocurrency, encryption stuff going overseas. Then, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, in fact, uh, what I view as an imperative for us as a project and Horizon and for the entire industry is we have to decentralize and we have to decentralize fast because you don't want single points of failure where it's the U.S. government says, "Hey, Rob, we're shutting you guys down. Stop yeah. doing what you're doing." Right? Um, freeze money. I, I mean, if if you have points of failure and you have humans in the loop, of course, um, you know, let's not be cavalier about this. And too many people in the industry have been cavalier about the government's ability to you know, stop these systems. And we can say, okay, technically, you can't ever stop Bitcoin, right? It's, it's, uh, it could be replicated by anyone with a computer, so you can't technically stop it, but they can make our lives hell and destroy a lot of lives, so we shouldn't be cavalier. Um, you know, and I really hope that it never comes down to that. Now, we are an international organization and we are decentralizing, say, our treasury. We wanna decentralize decision-making with the voting system. Right, decentralize our node network from the tracking to the payments of it. We want to just decentralize everything so that we don't have those points of failure. And, and you know, like I would love to be able to just be one of many participants in this um, ecosystem. We see the we can see the the contrast today now because of, of Facebook, right? Uh, they're being brought before the U.S. government to testify, but there is no one from Bitcoin <laughs> going to testify. So exactly. There's, like, there's that exactly. glaring difference that. Uh, that has yep. become very obvious, you know. So um, is that something that's in the roadmap for um, Horizon Labs? Or Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with the whole sidechain thing, so we're going uh, live with an alpha in end of Q3 um, slash early Q4. We'll see how that goes. Uh, and the whole point of, or one of the big things that that allows us to do is we're building a voting system on a sidechain. So basically we're, our treasury pool, we're democratizing. And we'll have a, a, a way for people to vote on how the resources are used and how what kinds of decisions are made as, as an organization. And then we're also going to have another side chain that does our, our node tracking and payments and automating all that. And that's just the start. So we have to decentralize fast because we know that, you know, whether it's in the U.S., and I don't think it'll be in the U.S., but there'll be parts of the world where what we're doing will be considered illegal, which is insane. Right. I mean, we're, we're building technology. We're united people around the world. We're giving people opportunity. And. We're, we're basically innovating, you know, economically, technologically, socially. And I can see some systems that are more repressive trying to stop that. And, you know, I don't want us to have points of failure where they can go after these points of failure.
Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's the problem with the financial system as we know it today is that it's permissioned. So you have to have permission to join that. And a lot of people aren't, aren't able to receive that permission and 2 right. billion adults unbanked. And so there's this, this uh, exclusion. And, and then of course this right. gap of equality because people can't even get into the system and uh, through cryptocurrencies, whether that be stable coins or Bitcoin or whatever method they choose mm-hmm. um, it's permissionless, but um, definitely they don't want that. And uh, exactly. Yeah, it's shocking. But you know, I, I do think that what I love about this technology and other things that, that I, I participate in, like seasteading, is we have to make governments compete with each other and view us as, as customers instead of subjects. And then as soon as they start you know, viewing their role as providing useful services, uh, and that we have many options, then I think that, you know, they'll start competing with each other to do better, a better job. And you see this in a way like jurisdictions competing. Th- th- think, think about that, that, that you just said, because I know you're, I know you're uh, deep into the libertarian philosophy, so you get this. But think about <laughs> yeah. what you just said, where they should look at us as uh, customers instead of subjects. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's deep no, phil- but, but philosophically. No. But, right? but, but, but the government is servants of the people. Uh, well, supposed, was, supposed to be, but right. do, does it feel that way? Right, right. But, so we're going from wishing that yeah. they're subjects or, or servants, but to now, oh, at least just at least treat us yeah. as customers. Yeah, no, that's that's just lip service. I mean, go into a government agency and try to get something done, and then are you really their boss? Of course yeah. not. No, no, I know. Of course I know. not. Yeah, exactly. But no, but this is the language that's used, which is very misleading. Is we don't control government. There is a very small subset of people, say a few hundred you know, at the first level of control, and then you have thousands at the next level of control, and they're our bosses, Yeah. right? So it's not the other way around, no matter what kind of rhetoric there is. I think it should flip back around. Right, yeah, exactly. I was, uh, I was uh, in LA with Max Kaiser, and he was, he was, he was yeah. talking to a small group, and uh, they were talking about these increasing regulations and whatnot, and he just, basically the same conversation. And he just said, look, the second amendment was put into place to protect against tyranny. And if you don't think your government is representing you, is it tyrannical? And then maybe you should think about that. And he just kind of left it like that, you know, not advocating for anything, obviously, but yeah, yeah. um, just something to think about, you know, but we should have the right to change the government, but now we'd like it if they could just look at us as customers. Um, But I think uh, that actually goes into something that we talked about before we started recording where you would, you would you had said you had gone from New York to California to Texas, and I'm in California, and and those two states are the highest tax states yeah. in 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 the nation. Um, I'm stuck in one of them, uh, but you left to go to a, a lower tax state. We were talking about going to Puerto Rico, which is a big haven yeah. because it can bring taxes down very very low, yeah. and just the fact that um, as a customer we would go where we're treated best. Exactly. Yeah, and there's a reason why. So with Horizon Labs in January, we launched Horizon Labs. And there's a reason why we chose Austin, Texas as our headquarters, um, because it, they don't have repressive taxation. You know, it's, it's a blockchain hub, it's emerging as a blockchain hub. You have key talent there, but people are moving there and relocating from you know, Silicon Valley traditional areas to Austin and to other parts of Texas and, and states like that that are actually trying to attract people instead of you know, repel them. So it's, yeah. it, it's that concept. Like, do we see it within the United States? You have states competing with each other. You see it with, you know, internationally, countries start competing with each other, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I want to see more of that. I just want to see competition. You know, yeah. I, I'm not a fan of, you know, uh, you know, replacing governments or rebellions and stuff like that. Because, you know, the reality is you and I may disagree with uh, a government 
and you know, 50% of the rest of the population doesn't disagree with them. They actually like that government. And then what, what percentage gets to impose its will on the other percentage, right? I, I just don't like scenarios like that. They, they seem yeah. to be like win-lose. Yeah. Which, is why, which is why the answer is less government, right? Yeah, so exactly. The government, the government should be out of everyday decisions. So um, right. then instead of 50-50 split, it should be like the majority of people don't have a problem with government because they're not really right. affecting my life that much. Right, exactly. I, I'm a big believer in you know, the set of things the government does being as small as possible because then you have the least ability for it to violate people's rights and then to basically uh, cause such discontent. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's a different scenario because people that are, have discontent with a small government just want to get something from government. You know, whether it's for themselves or for others, maybe they feel like they're being philanthropic by taking your money and giving it to someone else. Um, but that's not real, you know, philanthropy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't even say the word. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious how you came to have that viewpoint being a PhD in economics, financial economics, um, because it seems like, and I'm not, I'm not a PhD in economics, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like from all the people that I know that are masters or whatnot in economics, um, everything they teach in the school system is kind of exact opposite of what we're talking here, right? So they teach that um, we should be able to control the market and we should yeah. have centrally planned uh, policies to control the market versus mm -hmm. personal, um, you know, responsibility. So yeah. you see I think there's, there's a couple of um, biases or behavioral biases that, that play themselves out in academia. One is uh, academics really like to feel smart, right? It, you know, like basically we go through our, our lives as like the top of our classes, our high school and college and all that. And we go into academia because we're good at it. And we're always, we've always been told our whole lives, you're so smart, right? And, and they kind of get off on that. And then it manifests uh, such that uh, we tend to gravitate towards theories that have tractable solutions, like tractable, but also complex because it's, it's a nice feeling to be able to solve like a second order differential equation and have a tractable result. And, and not everyone in the world can do this kind of stuff, but you can, and you have a tractable result there. So it's a nice thing because then, then the next thing is uh, the bias is uh, they like to, everyone likes to feel important, right? And it basically in the last hundred years, probably since Keynes and maybe a little bit before that, um, economists and academics started getting um, more influence in government because the things that they were telling government of we can control this, we can you know overcome these problems that they kind of self-identify in the market um, by giving you more power. Of course, politicians are going to love that. Yeah, give me the theory that justifies that I have more power. Right. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, but true science, though, and you know. So I know in the libertarian world, in the narco-capitalist world, that the kind of, you know, I live in, you probably live in, is um, there's this big academic bashing that goes on. And I think it's gone too far, like very, very much too far by people that don't really understand what goes on in academia. And true academics is true science where we do have a scientific method and we have data and we have processes and techniques to evaluate hypotheses. Now, there's too many, too many academics that violate these fundamental premises and they impose their opinions under the guise of academic um, credibility, like Paul Krugman, for instance. Mm -hmm. He's not an economist anymore. He was an economist and now he's just uh, basically a social commentator on the left, but he's using his credibility. Well, that's, that's when you reach the top, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's a shame. And I think that that does a big disservice to the world of science. Right, but true, like true academia should be just based science, uh, and it's just really unfortunate. But there are amazing guys um, that you know, like John Cochran, for instance, my my favorite economist. 
a finance professor at the University of Chicago. Now I think he's at the Hoover Institute, but the guy, the guy's brilliant. He wrote all the, you know, or some phenomenal books and asset pricing, but he's a real scientist and he's the kind of example that I look up to. But isn't, isn't science is a, uh, science is not like fact. Science is something that's an evolving learning stage, right? We're constantly testing and learning. Exactly. It's a process. And so it's you want process. to talk about economics as a yeah. science, but we don't have controlled studies. No, right? no, no, no. Yeah. The, the studies are, are very, um, very, very much uncontrolled. And there are some controlled studies or not, but they're very limited because the, the range of what you should, you should extrapolate the results to be is very narrow. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. Especially in social systems, they're complex systems. So we shouldn't be so arrogant to think that we really understand human behavior so thoroughly that we can predict everything. Uh, and then and have you, have you dived into the Austrian economics then? You, you've, you've, I'm a huge fan. That's where I came from actually. So oh. that was, you know, that, that was where I came from before I went into academia and I still oh, really? very much love, love and you know, the, the premises. I think Austrian economics to me is more of a philosophy than it is necessarily economic science. It provides a great um, you know, framework, but it is like a hundred year old, uh, you know, economic tool, tool set. And there are, there are more modern tools as well. Would you say, though, that the big difference is that uh, with Austrian, it's more about uh, human incentives, like personal incentives versus um, uh, traditional economics or Keynesian economics being more like master planned and controlled? Totally, totally. Yeah. So Austrian is probably more micro and Keynesian is more macro. And I, I definitely think macro is more voodoo science because it treats it treats economics like physics and it's not, uh, you know, so I, I'm much more of a believer in, at the human level. Now, one thing that Austrian economics doesn't have, although maybe there's a huge overlap, is um, the behavioral economics stuff that came about basically from, uh, you know, from the Kahneman and Tversky experiments that they started doing in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then some of those papers really blew open this whole, you know, subfield of economics that I think maps in a way back to Austrian school of thought, where we're actually looking at human humans as non-standard economic agents, you know, because, you know, if you want tractable, you know, second order differential equation solutions, you need uniform uh, economic agents. And we're not all uniform. We don't have all the same utility functions that are easily mappable and tractable, right? So I'm a big fan of where economics is going. Although the problem, there's a downside to that, is you have some, some academics that use this as like a, a toolkit to advocate for more control from government which I think is the exact wrong outcome from it. They basically say, it's like the market for lemons as, a, as an example. You see this, you know, okay, nice theory that says that you should never have uh, a secondary marketplace, basically for used cars. No one should ever buy a used car because the previous owner or the current owner knows more about the car's condition than you. There's an information asymmetry and therefore you guys can't agree on a price. This is the academic argument. It's a famous art, you know, uh, a journal article. It obviously false. We have secondary markets for everything, right? right? So obviously false. But if you were to just take this theory and blindly apply it without context, I think you'd be completely wrong. And I think this is where, unfortunately, a lot of uh, policy guidance has gone. Well, it seems like in that analogy, but also the other policies that I hear, it always leaves out the human incentive part. And I, I think humans have this innate ability. I have little kids and I see them on the playground and they're already trading their bologna sandwich for the chips. Like we have this, uh, we have this like innate ability or desire to, to trade and to, uh, and to own property. And, and uh, you know, everybody wants to preach yeah. equality, but at the end of the day, some people just are more motivated than others. Some people want to work harder than others. Some, and, and, uh, and there's incentive there. And so, 
um, when these these macroeconomic policies don't take that into consideration and they they almost work against a lot of that incentives from from my from my standpoint and even that car example as you say um, I may have an incentive to save money and I may have an incentive to uh, save money because I know more about cars than you do and I have an edge right and so right. you just you just you can't take that away from people no, uh, and, no, and good. Yeah. And you know, one other thing to throw out there is there's uh, utility to freedom, right? I value freedom. So even if you were to just mathematically prove to me that, you know, eating sugar is bad and actually don't eat a lot of sugar, but say like eating, <laughs> eating fat is bad. You, you, you go and prove it. You have some theory, you have some evidence. Uh, if you, you take away my right to eat a, a cheeseburger, I'll be pissed. Even if I know that it's not necessarily bad, but it, it's completely disproportionate because maybe it gives me some value right now. And I know I'm not going to eat a hamburger every meal for the rest of my life, which would be a short life, right? But freedom has value. And to just impose people on people, you know, the will of the, the, I don't know, the ivory tower is a terrible idea, even if they're right, which I don't think they are. Right. So. Well, they can't, they can't be, they can't be right for everybody. Yeah. I might be okay dying at 40 years old if I can eat a cheeseburger every day. Exactly. And that's my right. Exactly. I love cheeseburgers that much and I don't need to live to 80. So I'm going to eat them every day until and, and 40. And, and who are you to tell me that I can't? Yeah. Uh, I think, I think it's a philosophical argument that um, you can't make somebody's life better by taking away their choices or forcing them to do things they don't want to do. Right. Right. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm very much opposed to that. Absolutely. I would and, love for them to say, Hey, we, we can help you here. Here's a plan. Here's why it's bad. And try to reason with me. Sure. Just Education. Me. Yeah, exactly. But it, you know, I think it goes, I, th I think it just goes from a win-win into a, a win-lose deal. Yep. Um, but I think there's also a stark difference in, you know, Austrians believe in saving and deploying that capital versus yep. Aust uh, traditional economics believes in spending for capital, right? And so that's a big difference. Totally, totally. And I think the reason why that's uh, important to understand right now is I believe what Bitcoin is doing is it's changing that narrative because we've never really had a deflationary currency before. Right. And I know this personally because I own Bitcoin and I know because I talk to other people with Bitcoin, but it, it changes the way I think about spending. So my dollars, I have no problem yeah. spending my dollars. Yep. Oh, 2000 bucks last week and went to Texas with my daughter. Sure. Dropped two grand. We done a trip together. No big deal. Yep. Those are my dollars. They're worth less next month. Anyway, <laughs> my Bitcoin, I'm not selling that for anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, um, and that's where we should be, right? We should be in that saving mindset, deploying capital. And so that's a big difference, right? I completely agree with you on that. I, I really don't know where this nonsense of, you know, perpetual deficits and perpetual inflation came from. I, I think it's just insanity. Um, no, you can see why it's applied because it's really useful for politicians. Why would they ever want to live within a budget? No. Politicians are too creative to live within a budget. They want, obviously want to spend more than they have right now because they're not responsible for paying it. So of course they're going to gravitate to any theory that tries to pseudo justify that, that nonsense, but it's not sustainable. No, but uh, it's human nature. Yeah. And human yeah. nature is always going to want to push it as long as you can push it until you can't push it anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So um, you're not an economist, but you are a PhD in economics. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, I mean, right now we have this system where we have, uh, we have this system that whatever you want to call it, Keynesian or modern, whatever, where we're building debt, we're spending money we don't have. In the next couple of years, we won't be able to cover the debt, uh, the interest on the debt. Um, and now we have this other system that's creating this deflationary currency. Uh, and we're starting to see the this, you know, distinct differences of that. All the developed world, not just the United States, but the, the whole West at least, but most of the world is in the same economic situation where we're spending, spending, spending. Yeah. 
Yep. Is there a way out? I mean, once they've gone down this path, there's really no way like you have to continue down the path, right? Uh, there's no way. I mean, there, I mean, I guess you could wake up tomorrow and just change your mind, but that's likely not going to happen. So the reason it hasn't collapsed yet is because theoretically they say, hey, growth will catch up and we'll be able to grow ourselves out of our problems, grow ourselves out of the debt, right? Uh, so far, that hasn't happened. We've seen a lot of growth around the world, but uh, that actually incentivizes politicians to spend even more. So, you know, if, if they just spent less than we're growing, you know, and, and we got into less debt per year than we were growing, we'd eventually be able to theoretically work ourselves out of it. Um, but I, I just don't see right now, uh, the incentives are not there for politicians. So I, I wouldn't expect it anytime soon. I think we need more competitive uh, governance, really. And this is why I'm such a fan of things like seasteading and cryptocurrencies, because we can vote with our, our, our money now. We can vote with our feet. Uh, these are really empowering things. There's never been a better time to be alive than today. Yeah. I believe we're in a very transitional period that, you know, maybe 100 years from now, they'll have this period written about in history books where, um, what the heck were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally agree. It's what was like, this 50-year <laughs> thing they did? Like, what the heck, right? Have you ever seen that video of like a, an alien comes to Earth and uh, some, some encounters his first human and the human says, do you want me to take you to our leader? And the alien is like, what's a, what's a leader? Like, where, does they lead, where do they lead you? you know, and it's this really cool video. It, it's like a, a cartoon. I highly recommend it. Because it's a huge parody of, I think, 100 years from now, people will look back on today and think we're savages. Like, how could we live this way? How could we let people exploit each other this way? And by exploit, I mean really exploit, not these like weird fantasy terms of I'm exploiting you because I'm getting, I'm making money. No, no, no. I'm talking about people actually taking, you know, taking us and putting us in cages for smoking pot or, you know, violating people's human rights or stealing from people like systematically through through unfair taxes and stuff like that. that That's real exploitation. And I think this will be looked back on as barbaric and completely unnecessary. I agree. And to yeah. think that we have no, um, no standard unit of account for wealth or value or whatever you want to call that, which uh, really I think stems, you know, is at the, at the base of all these problems, but um, yeah, good stuff. And interesting. We could, we could talk about that forever, but um, kind of, we're kind of running out of time, but um, I love, I love what you're doing, Rob. I love, I love the information that you're putting out. Um, and I love what uh, horizon labs is doing to increase privacy, which I think is, uh, is a big piece we didn't really get into, but uh, from, from a philosophical level, the, Privacy is such a big piece of an entire yeah. society. No, uh, you want to just maybe tell me in a couple sentences why, why you think privacy is so important to a society? I, I mean, privacy is at the heart of everything. I mean, I, I, it's almost so big of a question. I don't know how to answer. Or, you know, how do you answer something like that? Because, uh, you know, if you don't have privacy, you really don't have the ability to have any kind of freedom. Right. Um, you know, we can say you have freedom, but is the second some authority doesn't like what you're doing, or doesn't like what you're saying, uh, doesn't like what you're doing with your money, right? Then, then they can do whatever they want to you. So, you know, it, it starts off, if you believe in freedom and you believe that human beings have a right to their own lives, I think you have to believe in, in privacy. And it's not about having something to hide. It's about having the freedom to have your own thoughts. And um, to people who think they have nothing to hide, the problem is, is that um, there's someone on both sides of the aisle. So it doesn't matter what debate you're on, pro-life, pro-choice, Democrat, Republican, whatever. There's going to be somebody on the opposite side. And, uh, and really it comes and it's more than just the decisions. It's, uh, it's the thought. And then it's the creativity that comes from that. 
Yep. Um, so, uh, so anyway, I think it's a huge piece and I love it. And, and, uh, and uh, that's why I really like the project and follow along. So where do people follow along to learn more about horizon horizon labs and yourself? So our website horizon.global is a one-stop shop for everything, but then please join our, join our discord, join our telegram groups, you know, come to our Reddit page, uh, participate, see what's going on. We're, we're always up there. I definitely encourage our team to be very active with the community. So you can reach out to us directly. Please do. Cool. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Thanks so much for the conversation, so, Rob. I look forward to it again sometime. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.